Hey everyone, welcome to the first episode of the Not Only Farmers podcast. Here I go, starting on this journey with the idea of a podcast, and I think, I think, eventually some sort of agricultural network. I'm not sure yet, honestly. I'll be experimenting over the coming episodes with the style and approach of the podcast until I kind of find my footing or my voice or whatever you call it. That's the fun with creating something with very few rules. You can test and see what works and make changes where necessary. I'm realizing it's very similar to farming. Not many rules and you adapt to your own personality and your own tastes. This week's episode is with an old friend and Blue Fox Farm alumni, Tyler Stowers. And here's what I wrote about Tyler. Tyler has been farming for over a decade and has experienced all aspects of food and food production. Whether working in a high-end restaurant, working in the vegetable fields, harvesting livestock, or smashing burgers on a backyard grill, Tyler has been in the trenches repeatedly pushing his comfort zones and continuously learning what does and doesn't work in an agricultural enterprise. I respect Tyler for his perseverance and grind to figure out what makes sense on his quest for agricultural knowledge. What I respect even more is his ability to keep philosophical questioning and insight at the forefront of his thinking throughout the rigorous grind of farming. That questioning and introspectiveness makes for some great stories and real honesty about who he is. I always have a great time chatting with Tyler, whether it's about agriculture or music or anything else, honestly. I hope you all enjoy this. And if you enjoy this episode, I would hope that you can give us a follow and tell a friend or family member who would also enjoy these discussions. I think that's going to be the best way to grow this podcast is through word of mouth. Now, here's my conversation with Tyler. All right, well... Let's do this, Tyler. Perfect. Jagger. <laughs> hey, everybody. This is my friend, Tyler Stowers. Uh, he's a old Blue Fox Farm alumni from back in the mid-2010s, 2013 to be specific. Um, yeah, we don't have a good name for the era, right? We have aughts, but like the mid-teens, you can't say teens. Do people know what you say if you say, I'm back from the teens, that's when we first started hanging out with one another, farming with one another. But uh, I kind of wanted to start by asking you, like, why farming? Like, when in your life did that bug hit you that you actually even considered it as an option? Because I know that you farmed a couple spots before you worked with us, but mm -hmm. let's, yeah. let's go back all the way there. I want to, this is going to be a good I, memory for I, me. I have that moment in my brain, but I have to arrive there first because so it'll be a bit more uh, contextually make more for context. I got to explain. So I grew up mm, with a, a latchkey kid, just me and my dad. My mom was around, but I primarily spent most of my childhood with my dad, always cooked in the house. So food was a big part of my my childhood. And uh, subsequently, my jobs after high school were somewhat food adjacent, right? Either grocery working or restaurant working. And uh, I ended up in college working for Chez Panisse in Berkeley, right? This is a pioneering farm-to-table restaurant, one of the first farms and restaurant relationships that were pretty exclusive where Alice would 
go and search for her farmer and she, she Alice waters for, for all of your listeners. And, uh, uh, I thought that was a premeditated joke. I was like, Oh, I'll keep, I'll keep referencing all of the audience members and all of Jagger's listeners. So even though it's the first episode, uh, thousands. And, um, thousands. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I had this, I had this ridiculous job at the restaurant where I was technically a front of the house employee, but I was working in the back of the house. I was working in a, a, in a, a, it was a prep kitchen during the day, but I would just sit there. My job was wine runner. So I wouldn't wear the chef's whites or anything like that. I would wear the same outfits that the people on the floor would, but I, I wasn't allowed on the floor. They just had me back there as a wine runner. So the level of, of service that Chez Panisse wanted to commit to was a, uh, they, they was such that they couldn't be bothered having their servers running to wine cellars to spend all this time looking for bottles. So they would enter in an order for a wine bottle in the POS system. I would get a receipt ticket in my little prep kitchen and I would grab it and I would run to the wine cellar or walk and uh, grab the bottle, bring it up to the busser station, go back to the room and wait for the next one. So in a six hour shift, you know, even if we had 30 bottles of wine ordered, I was still chilling a lot. I would polish silverware, polish wine glasses, do some food prep for pastry, like peel apples and stuff. But mostly I was just walking around trying to, you know, project busyness. You know, like, it's like two, George Costanza told us that the best way to look busy is to like feign frustration or like, or, or just walk fast. So I would just walk, I would just walk around. What I was really doing was, one, grazing in the coolers. I would just eat things, uh, prepped cheeses and old stewed meats. Like, <laughs> I can't, thinking back on it, I'm like sticking my fingers in, <laughs> in hotel pans of stewed meats. But I'm trying all this stuff is the point. And I'm loving the quality of the food. And I'm observing the chefs cook. They're super busy. They're, they're hustling. And I'm just kind of watching, staring at them, not doing much. So the combination of seeing these really high technical masters, right? These guys are incredible. These line cooks hustling, got several things going at once, and they're cranking out really high quality food. But I, I even then knew that their technical expertise only took them so far. What really made the, the difference at that restaurant was the, the ingredients. They were getting incredibly high quality produce and across the board, but produce for the sake of this conversation. And... And so then they all were coming from this farm, this one farm, Canard Farms in the Sonoma Hills. This was a relationship that I and Alice struck up in, I think, in the 80s, where they had this exclusive farm providing a majority of the produce, not all, but a lot of it for the restaurant. And uh, we had a staff party each year, and one of the st and it was always at the farm, at Bob's Farm. And it was in the Sonoma Hills, and I, I showed up there for one of the staff parties. It was a, like a 25-acre farm nestled in these foothills. Like you couldn't you – couldn't, no farmer could achieve – could get on this land by selling carrots and lettuce heads, right? Like this was, this was that special of a place in wine country, everything it appreciated. So it was, it was magical, tucked into all of these vineyards – super it was backed up to forest so it was wild behind his house and i saw all these people there who were i would later learn were interns and friends of his these are grizzled sun-kissed mountain people there's a giant th three foot four foot copper paella pan in the old cooking fish stew over the open flames people were grilling it was totally magic i was like this what is this place and you know it's a party so it was looked a little nicer there was wine going around and 
we'll just say other stuff uh, happening to really change the chemical balance in our brains and to make someone like me who was impressionable, I would think I was 24. Uh, I was, I was primed for something like this. Uh, uh, <clears throat> uh, this was, this was lining up with, I was graduating college in 2010. So right on the, the back end of this financial crisis with this freaking humanities degree, I was a philosophy major. So ain't not, ain't, not a lot of jobs for anybody at the time, let alone philosophy majors. I think most of my my uh, my peers were either going into law school or going back to study more philosophy at the graduate level to become professors, none of which appealed to me. So I was looking for something else. And <clears throat> I uh, learned from talking to these people at the party that Bob had a farm school. It was this an apprenticeship, right? Or you could learn farming for a three-month internship and I thought, wow, this is great. Let me try this out. And I, so that was June of 2011 and signed up for the three-month internship. Uh, loved it. Three months turned into six months, which turned into nine months at Greenstring, which eventually farming has turned into 11 years. That was, that was it. Uh, because I, what, what originally was just a, a desire to be closely connected to higher quality ingredients and food turned into this, this, like this amalgam of saving the world. That was what I was wanting to do, right? All these in farming, especially farming in the particular way that we come to, to subscribe to was this way to, to, to elegantly solve all of these super complicated global issues. Not, you don't need a ton of tech. You don't need crazy inventions. It's a, it was a really elegant, multifaceted, multi-layered solution to save all the world's problems. So, the deeper I got into it, the more it appealed to me. And I think I started to develop that like farmer's righteousness and farmer's nobility as I was, as, as I was traveling through, um, <clears throat> through the, through the depths and the rabbit holes. But yeah, man, that was, that was how it started was, was through food. I, people talk about food security and I was like, yeah, food security was very important for me, but I wanted to secure my access to food instead of the other way around. So, uh, very self-interested, but started in the kitchens of Chez Panisse. And then did you, did you end up doing like markets and stuff when you were working at Bob's place or how did you guys Bob didn't do, Bob didn't do markets. Mm -hmm. We had a farm stand on site. So we, we kind of, which the apprentices would rotate through, uh, uh, <clears throat> there's a rotation where some people would do animal chores for a month. Some people would do, uh, they'd go to another farm of his for a month to see a different scale of production. And some people would work in the store, the farm stand on site. So there was engagement with customers, but not like packing up and moving to, to going into town and setting up in a parking lot. Uh, the next apprenticeship I did at Full Belly, that's when I started doing markets is with those guys. Right, that's right. Yeah. And, and talk about your experience at Full Belly for a few. I, I left Greenstring wanting to, so I, I applied to a farm management job every, every step of the way after every farm at every, so even at those three month divisions, I finished a three month apprenticeship and I started applying for farm manager jobs and they're like, farms would get back to me and go, thanks for your inquiry, but bro, you don't, you don't get it. Yeah, and uh, so I, go, mm -hmm. I go, all right, well, you know, you don't get it. I'm, you, you just watch. And so, but I would also apply to other apprenticeships and it was that between, between blue, between green string and full belly, I went up to Southern Oregon. I found the rogue farm Corps, And so I applied to a few farms in the, in the Applegate years. 
uh, Barking Moon. So I came up and interviewed for an apprenticeship at your place a year a year before I later took a, a different position there. I don't know if you recall that. I don't. Uh, no, I didn't remember that. I've forgotten. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, uh, a couple farms up there, and but meanwhile, and so people were telling me these farms that were rejecting me these, these, for these farm manager jobs are like, you here's some advice. Go work on a bigger, more established farm. Try to go as big and as established as you can first because it's much easier in your progression to scale from there back to small scale and newer than it is working your way out as you, as you, as you, as you go through your career. So I listened to that advice and applied at Full Belly, which was at the time a 30-year farm. They had, I think, uh, the statistics vary depending on my memory and like where they're at in their years because they own... I think a couple hundred acres of of land, and then they lease out a ton throughout the valley. So, any given year, they could lose a lease, pick up a lease for whatever reason. But so there, there was there's seventy seventy ish full time crew members. There, they have almost everything you could think of. That's the the blessing and the curse of the 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 the, the Central Valley is you could grow anything, just about anything year round. Uh, so lots of from from fruit, stone fruit to nuts to animals, they're growing a lot of their own chicken feed when I was there. So they're doing like broad acre row crops, uh, and <clears throat> it's just they had a they did they they marketed at farmers markets. They had a huge wholesale business, and they did a massive CSA to like four digit numbers of boxes going out a week. Just incredible scale, and everyone was happy. And everyone was established and they had a, so I think that the sauce that they have, and to me that depend, that was like the gold standard farm in, in California that I knew of because they seem to be doing everything right. Right. So like if you think about farming with the, the triple bottom line on a farm, for example, one that meets ecological, economic and social, I don't know, goals, um, they, they had it. So the customers loved them. The employees were happy. They were making money. They're building soil, improving biodiversity and part of it was their mindsets as owners, I think I've come to learn. But then I started to see that it was a, a partnership, a four-person partnership is their, their ownership model. It now has evolved into six. Some of the children are now a part of the farm. But they had complementary strengths in their ownership, which I think really helped round out a farm. As you know, a farmer's got to do so much. It's got to be so many things. And even even the the greatest among us have a hard time doing it all. But when you have four or six people who can, someone can make sure that the farm is up to codes and regs and get some other person who's a great salesperson, another person who's a great mechanical person, and this one's great with people, and this one has animal proclivities, and this one has these aspirations. Like you can really, it, it, it come, so it, it, it really made for a, uh, uh, a high octane really i mean you 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 talk to them about it and they'll tell you that they're just figuring it all out and they're they're they've got a lot to learn um but also their their mindsets were tremendous you know i i don't know about you but i later when i was working here as i when i became a farm manager i would view summer as this like really tough incredibly taxing time call it things like dog days of summer and oh these summer months and what a grind. And 
and I would, and I remember going to Full Belly as as a farmer. They would do these pizza nights, and they would cook pizza, and you'd sit on this lawn and overlook the the setting sun over the the Cape Bay Valley. It's just just great. And I was talking to one of the owners, Andrew, and I'm talking about summer, this exact topic. And his narrative, his words were like abundance and amazing. Isn't it amazing how abundant everything is? How fast everything grows? He's describing the same phenomenons: weeds, uh, like tired people nonstop harvest, but his attitude was completely different than mine. And I thought, oh my gosh, this, this is also, this is how you guys are able to maintain this. And this is in like year 30 of their careers. So that was super special. That stood out to me. Uh, <clears throat> and you feel like you're, you're part of a fraternity too, being a full belly intern and being part of full belly because they've been around for so long. They do this amazing festival each year. It's kind of cooled since COVID. I don't think they've done it called the hose down which it was a harvest festival that would attract people from i mean they get like thousands five six thousand people camping in, in their orchards and having fun on their farm Can you imagine bringing in all those people to your farm like uh, someone calls a singular person would call to get a farm tour i'm like hell no too much work let alone five thousand six thousand people so it was it was just amazing nonstop farming education through a through a fire hose because there's so much you have access to and there's there's you can hang out with and the days were structured so interestingly whereas as an intern everyone would meet in this yard in the center of their farm where like the loading docks were the washing pack was the office there was just this this yard where they kept a lot of the tractors and field tanks so people would meet there and and figure out what the days were harvest managers so like they they delegate different labor crews and to crop specific. Some people are just tomatoes and some people are bunching greens and some people are um, squash people. Some people are asparagus. Oh man, that's a great story too. Um, but uh, uh, so you would go and you would meet with a partner, whoever will like, I want to learn more about animals today. So you'd go to the animal person and then you'd work with the animal people or the next day, like I, I'm, I want to look, work more on harvesting. So you would go to the veg guy and then you'd work more with those people. So it was really free form. Um, you know, you needed to be a self-starter. You lived there on site. I was my first intro. Uh, the green string living conditions were pretty good. Full bellies were <laughs> all right. I lived in the, the first day moving in. I had to like, gave me a shop vac to like vacuum the cobwebs out of this like little pink trailer that I was living in. It's like, oh, okay, uh, this is great. And, and, uh, uh, later moved into a yurt, which was fun. So, you know, you're living there on site, feeling just totally absorbed, full immersion. Uh, the farm was, the language of the farm was in Spanish. So you got to pick up Spanish, whether you liked it or not, you kind of had to, to survive. So it felt full immersion that way too. Even the, the partners, you know, all, all white people had to mostly talking in Spanish all day long and their Spanish was great. So it was just, I could go on, man. It was, uh, just describing what was going on there, let alone how, how I felt. So that was a, uh, yeah, I was 20, 26 years old and you, you kind of develop a farm farmer's arrogance, I think, because you go there and you think you got it all figured out. Maybe this is just like a common, very normal thing too, with all, all industry where you get exposed to the, the downside of being exposed to a farm that was that established is you have no idea what it took to get there. And you don't know, like, you don't realize that, that, that these people who may think and appear to have it all figured out don't themselves, but you're projecting that onto them, which then you go to other farms and other farmers. And then you have that, that like, I know it all because I've seen it at this other level. 
And um, so you got to be careful with, with your exposure because you, as an intern, even though you're there working, it's 80, 50, whatever hours a week, you're going to only seeing just a small, a small sliver of the whole operation. Okay. I, um, so it was pretty, pretty amazing. Uh, I'll pause there because I could just keep going. But. Well, it, it, uh, what you're just saying there at the end is something that I've always realized is that every farmer you ever talk to, no matter how long they've been in it, if they're actually have humility about it, they say they're still learning. They have no idea what's going on, you know? Um, yeah, it's, it's always that. And so that's what I've always loved is that it's not, it's not like if you're in, in some other job, uh, where time levels the playing field, it's just like immediately the farm levels the playing field for everyone. And then no matter how arrogant or confident anybody is, which I think that arrogance and confidence plays a really strong part in becoming a successful farmer later, but you get, you get leveled and then you have to work yourself back up to that. And it's not arrogance either. It's confidence. And that's confidence is really important to, but, but you get, you become a, you become a peasant to the farm, you know, like from the start and you kind of have to work your way back up to comfortability that like, Oh, okay. actually, I can, I can harness the beast here, but I've got to have a massive respect for it too. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because there's so many ways to do it farming and it's just, and, and even, even the same, like you could, there could be a farmer across the street that would do things entirely different from you and be successful just as successful if not more and so with employees and even in the way you carry yourself i mean there's so many opportunities to second guess yourself and your operations because you saw a dope youtube video or went to a great conference had a good conversation but you having the conviction and confidence to instruct yourself and then if you have employees you got to tell them what's up to especially if shithead interns come to your farm who just think that they've got it all figured out of only farming for 18 months um, you got to deliver a bit of conviction to them. And, you know, meanwhile, you don't even, you're not even sure yourself, but you got to put it on and, and act and embody that, that conviction because it just not enough time in the day. You can't, you can't do it all. And you, that, you're going to get flattened already. So you might as well, you give it your best foot forward and, and come across So that, that, that's a, yeah, that's, it's important. That's a good point. Do you, do you think that I've always wondered this, do you think that I know full belly is their strength comes from the partnership between the owners, but do you feel like a lot of the longevity of that specific farm really has to do with the scale that they were able to operate? I've always wondered about that is like, because they were able to delegate responsibilities to a staff of 70, a hundred people or whatever. Do you think that that plays a part in a, a farm's long-term success is not being large scale like that, but just scaling properly. A hundred percent. I mean, they're not out there lugging in totes of cabbages coming the field. And so from a physical standpoint, you know, the farming, a farm manager, a farm owner, a farm operator, there's so much of your brain is, 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 is at full capacity with all the moving parts going on. And most people who, who, who get, you know, the promoted themselves or who work their way into that position end up being good. There were good grunts to begin with, right? They could do the physical stuff. Well, they could, they had the bodies and the stamina to, to do it. Uh, but that shit catches up to you over time. And 
you know, I, I, I think that they, so just by the sheer uh, ability to delegate some of the more physical grueling tasks alone speak to one stamina, but then the capacity bit. So if you know, you've got a good crew out there making sure that quality is good, speed is there, everything's being handled on the ground level, you can be freed up to work on your business. And, and you know, they're, they're, they still go to market. I mean, they, they still are waking up at three in the morning every week, each partner, not every week, but each partner's got their own markets they would go to. So they're still very much a part of that grueling physical grind of the farm, which I don't, I mean, because they love it. That's must be. That's the only explanation I can have is they still love it. They still love connecting. And I, well, yeah, and it's it's a part of their their marketing efforts too. I mean, as a customer, you know, I bet you probably saw when you stopped doing markets, sales dipped a bit. You just they just people can't. And, and there's part of the couple of reasons for that. I'm sure people maybe you, no one's going to care about your farm the way that you do. So your 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 display would be more pumped and cleaner. And you'd hustle more than, than a paid employee just because it's your farm. But also I think people, customers would look for you. And there's, everyone's got, if a lot, if there's a lot of great options for bunch carrots and people would typically go to you because they could interact with Jagger and have a good talk with Jagger and if Jagger's not there and then go, okay, I'm just going to get those other carrots because I'm already over there. Um, so I think there's an element, that element is still there for them on, on markets so I think that, yeah, so that delegation for sure. And they found specialists in the ranks too, not just in their partnerships, but specialists in their ranks that can help delegate stuff. There's a full-time mechanic. When I was there, this guy was an incredible wrench turner and, you know, would get the most gnarliest beat up machines firing in, in good shape. And he was the, he was, he probably made more money than the partners did uh, because he was so valuable so that was another thing. They, they scaled, they found the specialists, they delegated well, they compensated well, they paid people well. So people, people's energy was high and morale was good. They found a way to uh, keep farming exciting and interesting as they scaled. So part of scaling meant like, all right, well, this, this person's village in Pueblo and in Mexico, they were really big into sesame farming. This is a real example in sesame seed farming. And so this person came to the partners and like, I want to, can we grow some sesames? I know how, this is how we did it. This is, and so they said, sure, let's get some land and uh, we'll, we'll set it all up, get the machinery. We'll have all the protocol. We'll get the, the, the pickers, the threshers, the dryers, the, we'll, we'll, we'll do it all. And so you scale and you have engaged people. You have, a, you diversify your offering. So you're selling more to the same customer. Um, so it's this really, you know, positive feedback loop engages when you're scaling the way that they are uh, in that way. Uh, their kids or, or they made a place where their kids were excited to come back and be a part of the farm. Not, they didn't push it, but they just were chasing their, well, at least allowing for their children's interests to manifest at scale. So like a kid has an interest in, building so hey let's let's have you construct a bunch of little houses for interns or for whatever and build yurts so that and 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 fortunately for them a lot of these kids these children's interests were farm adjacent enough to where kids can build up whole enterprises around the farm and so it scales and again it helps that positive feedback loop helps keep morale high engagement high people are interested in doing what they want so um so it's not like uh, there's a huge crew of people 
just picking radishes all day because that's what the farmer wanted their farm to be. The farm itself was shaped by the people participating in it. So uh, in their case, that model was really helped. So, I mean, they, they scale in that way, which I think is fairly unorthodox compared to how other larger farms and, you know, they're, as, as we know, they're, they're a, they're a, they're a big small farm or a big medium farm. And especially compared to those in the Valley, holy shizzle, that's a lot of huge, ag is so big, but uh, yeah, man. So delegation scaling absolutely contributes to uh, longevity um, too, for sure. Yeah. I just, I'm just always, I'm always curious, like, because we won't go down this rabbit hole, but I'm always curious about what's the actual appropriate scale for a farm in a, you know, in a modern world to, to scale and then replicate to make the needle shift. You know, that's always been my question. So, um, you know, it's like, can we have 10,000 five acre farms or should we have, you know, a thousand 500 acre farms? And I'm saying we don't need to necessarily go all the way down that rabbit hole today, but it's just something that is always in the back of my head. And, and I don't, I don't know which one's the right answer or if there is a right answer, but it's, I think they're a good example of how a bigger farm can really have a, a needle moving effect. Yeah. I think that the answer is somewhere between, and it's not, a, it's not an answer. I think a lot of farmers would love it to be that quilted, you know, textured mosaic landscape of all these small holding farms where there's a single operator with a tiny crew. I mean, and I love that. And I was a hundred percent bought into that. You know, you did that, that this phenomenon and conversation people go not to get into it and they just like talk about it. Oh yeah. That's, that's how, it, that's how you do it. That's how you ease into the rabbit hole. So you're not just jumping in, not, you're falling not to, in. Uh, <laughs> not to get into it. I think more accurately, it's like, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm, we're doing this, but I, I have opinions in the front of mind because this is a subject that, you know, that is, is on our minds because you, as a farmer, you, you want to have impact and you want to, right. If, if, if your aspirations are greater than your own acreage and you want to, for whatever it is, you want to be contributing to your community at large or the, your industry or helping people like that. You, you kind of have a duty to, to scale and to grow and uncomfortably so. And I think that that, I think there's merit to a no growth model, right? So one where you've identified your quality of life and you understand your limits and you just stay here and because you know that this is your, comfort zone and you think if i'm going to have lasting impacts no matter the impact if it's going to last which is also important it's got to be sustainable and so here here's the model and it's going to be these small farms but then the attrition rate in farming the like the physics the math of how much food can be produced by all this who who are these people that are going to farming is so hard that that the best strongest farmers i know are like eh, i don't know <laughs> but then but then some of them are so the people are dropping out who's going to want to shit in a bucket for a couple years while they're you know while meanwhile they could just like go get a job at twitter and 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 make lots of lots more monies uh than than farmers um so these this like special combination of people to get in put in the hard work, learn a crazy amount of skills, endure an incredible amount of pain for something other than themselves. It's almost like being, you have to be a martyr, which doesn't last. 
And then how, how do they do it? The people who are, and, and where are these models to replicate? Where's a formal apprenticeship? Where's a good pathway? Where's something that people could get into now? It's like the, the, the people are established. They got through this barrier, like the full belly people. In addition to, so they, they, they were able to get that land in the 80s and they were able to pay for it. They put down a down payment uh, and uh, ended up taking out a mortgage, paid it off. Like, how the hell are you going to buy farmland in California or anywhere in the West or anywhere where any good farmland from, how are you going to fund that from, you know, lettuce heads and carrots and, and a dozen eggs or pounds of meat? Like, it's just, it's, it's so crazy how land prices are not being valued by their production capacity, but rather than the market value. So there's so much stacked against farmers that, I don't know. So as much as I'd love it to be this like dotted landscape, I don't know if that's the reality. And so therefore the people who are doing it and the few people that it is for, if they can scale uncomfortably and correctly, then it seems like that's going to be the way that we get food to people. And, um, and I, you know, I've, I've, my, my, my farming righteousness, my food righteousness have all like simmered over time thinking about the realities and, and to see who farming is left out, who, who the farm to table movement has left out, uh, how, how far, what's, what's, what's realistic. But yeah, I, I, and you, you scale and you develop a machine, you develop a business like a conveyor belt, which helps quality too, to a certain degree. It may not be ship shape, you know, each carrot bunch scrubbed clean by your, but, but you still have a pretty high quality product. And, uh, it, it, it it's, I feel like it's got to be lar fewer, larger farms these days. I just don't know who's going to do it. Yep. I, I mean, I think you're, I think you're exactly right. You know, um, and the, the other interesting thing that I've had to deal with is these are the questions you start asking yourself when you first start farming. Like I did, I started asking these questions from the time I started farming 25 years ago. And I'm still asking these questions now. And so you're trying to come up with these complex solutions for society. Meanwhile, you're farming, trying to survive and make a living. And then you, you know, you're 20 plus years in and you're like, wait, did I actually make a change here? You know, like, did I actually do the right thing here? You know, it's like we, when we who, bought our original. Who, who was this even for anyways? Well, yeah. And well, and then like, I mean, you, you're, you're faced with things that are amazing and horrible at the same time, like, you know, buying our original farm for $350,000 and then selling it 20 years later, the homestead for over a million dollars. And you feel you you have guilt that you feel about that. But at the same time, you're like, wait, that was that embedded, that embedded energy that I put into it over that 20 year period of time. But this still excludes so many other people for so many other reasons, you know, and so that's the challenge. And thankfully, we had the production farm that we were able to, you know, keep and hold on to and then hand off to hand off to other folks to keep farming it. So that like kind of lessens the blow. But it's just this challenge where you're always trying to think about this realistically um, while you're doing it. And then one day you wake up and you're like, oh, I'm moving towards being older. I will never say retirement, but I'm moving towards being older, you know, but, but you know, what kind of effect did I really have? Yeah. I mean, we get, you know, and it's, this is like, 
this, this, these, um, I think farmers <clears throat> are, um, we're, we're, I think the things that the, the, the armor that we build and that allow us to like push on through farming typically is scar tissue, I think from wounds that we've incurred as, as younger traumatized people. I mean, you just, you just see this collection of, of hurt people as you're, as you're, as you're meeting folks and getting into farming. And, and so then that carries over in, uh, cause we, because we are in pain, I'm speaking for myself and generalizing here. So forgive me, but this is, this is my observation and, and other people that I've met. No, we're all, uh, we're all messed up, Tyler. Don't worry. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and like, because it's just so gnarly. You have to, I think. Uh, I haven't found an exception to the rule yet, but or to my observation and my theory. And so then we want to, we want, we want to, the, the society becomes this metaphor for ourselves, right? We want to provide these things and heal and help ourselves. And we're telling people that we want this great impact. You want others to not have to go through this thing that we went through, or we just want to help because we're in pain. And if, if those of us who neglect ourselves in that process of, like of developing a farm, uh, then, then it's hard to look back on it and see what we did as valuable when there's incredible value along the way, like the people that you've impacted just on your employees, your farm. I mean, it, you know, like, it, is, it, is it fair to yourself to have such crazy goals that you're wanting to impact? You know, I want the whole Rogue Valley to have every uh, uh, side dish of vegetable from, from my farm every day. Uh, and, and otherwise it's going to be a fit for, for a hundred years. Otherwise this is a total failure. It's like, no, I feel that way sometimes, but it's not, it's not true. It's, it's like when you think back on the impact that you did have and you actually force yourself to look back and give yourself a pat on the back. Uh, there's there's a lot there, and I think all farmers can can relate uh, uh, to to impacting people's lives positively, even if it's for a short time. That's still a huge victory, and we should give ourselves more credit for that. Why? Well, why do you think that? I, I mean, some of the reasons that I'm doing these blasts from the past on Instagram are because I'm glad to be sharing them with people. But dude, this has been therapy for me to go back through all these old pictures and videos and realize. The, it, it, it should never be about net effect. It should just be effect in the moment. And I'm now going back and remembering these effect in the moments that I had on different people. And then I share those things. And then I have people reach out to me in the DMs that say, oh, yeah, don't you remember when I was there at Blue Fox? This happened or this story happened. And I'm like, oh, right. Like it it those are the things that make it work so even though my my monkey brain still is always trying to think about the grand solution just because i need to feed that that ego a little bit uh, i also at the end of the day i don't hang on to that as like the thing for me it's more about the incremental effects that i've had um and how those spider web out into the into the world which is why the blue fox alumni are so have always been so important to me you know yeah, I would. Uh, you know, I'm sure. I would, I'm waiting for the for the uh, the, the the that alumni post, and because it's 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 going to be a hard single or singular post, but all the people that have just worked at the farm over the years. I don't. I don't even know how. I don't even know how to do that post. I've almost posted that post four times, and I've I had yeah. one. I have had several that I 
I don't even have rough drafts of them. I have rough drafts of other things, but not the alumni post. I've written it and then thrown it in the trash three times. You know, it's yeah, it's so huge, but it's big. You know, it's everything. That's 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 uh, that's something that you know maybe it didn't meet up to these like falsified expectations, but like that's that's a huge. You know, it's something to give yourself credit for is all these people. And I will say all of us have been positively impacted by our time working at that, with that land, with those people, with you, with Melanie, with your kids, with your, you know, you, um, there are those of us who just work there and those of us who live there and work there too, is another, another thing. Uh, yeah, it's, I mean, there's, I mean, just in the two years I was there, there's, I could think of at least 50, at least 10 people for sure. And, you know, 10 big whoop, right. You could say that, but also like, fuck man, it's 10 people. That's a lot. That's a big impact. That's you, you, that's a, that's a, that's exponential. It's 10, 10 X or what, what, what you could just do for yourself. So that, yeah, that was, that was, a. Uh, and I don't know, man, uh, being a manager and managing people, you just, uh, unfortunately, the this is a this is a pivot, but I hope it's not a derailment. No pivot. The uh, we're talking about helping people and and people positively being impacted by working on the farm for you and being a manager. And the only right, I think that the only way you improve as a person, no matter the and the area of improvement you're working on, it's through it's through pain and it's through mistakes. It's through falling. And then you learn and you improve that that's just how it works. That's how muscles grow. That's how everything grows. But in management, those, those pains that falling, those are other people's lives. And, uh, and, you know, especially if you're, if you're, if you're messing up as a manager, people's lives are, are dramatically impact. So as I've tallied up those stumbles in my management career, you, you kind of think, Oof, yeah. I hope that they'll learn the lessons later <laughs> at some point because I hope I will or, or, you know, you just, you don't want to view these lessons as a sacrifice of, of like a relationship with someone or tough times, um, you know, because that's, that's what it, unfortunately, I, I wish, I wish we wouldn't have to, I wish we could just read a book and be a fantastic manager that everyone loves. Uh, but sometimes, you know, there's, there's arriving there at being a great person, people person takes, takes trial and error. And unfortunately, that error has meant people like having to find new jobs and uh, losing their jobs or um, making life changes directly as a result from their time working with, with us, with you. And that's that's tough. <laughs> it's times. So yeah, the farming. I mean, I'm a broken record with this. I've said this a million times, but the farming is really the easy part. It's the people that are always the not even the challenge. Well, yeah, they're the challenge, but that that is the deal. And that's the part where I think once I had the confidence with the replication of the seasonal, like the seasonal tasks of farming, once I understood that, then I was like, oh, good. We can just put this system into motion so I can actually dig into the messed up nature of all my staff. You know, and in a good way, I mean, cause I, I was there too, you know, like I was going through emotional, emotional shifts constantly and, and, but identifying those things, like I remember, I don't know, I have no idea if I told you this when you were there, but it was always the identification of like, Hey everybody, it's June. Um, just want to let you know, you're going to freak out 
you know, and then you're going to freak out again in August because of these reasons. And then there'll be one more freak out in like late October because you think that we're done, but we actually have almost a whole nother month and a half of markets until we're fully done. And just like identifying those ebbs and flows and just watching the people's brains process that I always got a real kick out of that. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's the, that's ooh, a kick. That's a great reaction to, uh, to, to this endless gauntlet of breakdowns and rebuilds. Cause uh, yeah, you know, that, that seasonal shift into the, the degrees of difficulty where not only are the days longer, so you're working more, the physical items you're handling are heavier. So you're, you're exerting more effort. There's a way more, lot more of it to do and you think you're good. And then it's all those seasonal year end harvest, the big carrot harvest, the squash harvest, garlic plant, whatever. There's these big tasks that you got to do to get through the year. And uh, yeah, so it's just, it's just, a, it's such a, crazy job to think of oh my gosh uh but yeah i see it too we, we i learned that you know that that warning and then and then totter especially you know it's, it's southern oregon is still a very hot place in the summertime and it doesn't really let up uh, for months and months similarly here i always say that it's about five ish degrees more uh hot here and and more warm. It's like just shifted about five degrees, yeah, two or maybe five ish degrees. So it gets a little colder, but it gets still plenty hot in Southern Oregon. And, uh, and, and so that, that was something that's not for the faint of heart either. You're just out there in those elements doing all those things we just mentioned. And it's, it's, you know, hot. It's, it's, do you ever listen to the, uh, the, uh, it's a podcast with Dana Carvey and David Spade. No, there was called, called. I just listened. It's called, yeah, I just listened to a podcast with uh, with Dana Carvey on it, and I was like, "This guy's awesome!" Like I'd forgotten yeah. how awesome he is. Those two guys, they still got it. They're right? the same thing, and basically, they're just they. It's those two guys hosting, and they have a guest. So there's three people. Um, Carvey and Spade are the mainstays, and they have so, and they're all their famous, usually Saturday Night Live friends. And, uh, and it's just so funny. I'm just like belly laughing most, most episodes cause they're rehashing old things, but they're doing impressions. Uh, uh, but Spade has this bit about that. They were talking about, um, how he, he, he's, he's not a very good skier. And he's like, what's with all these, it's the, the skiing is, is tough, but it's what, what's crazy to me about this. I'm not going to even try. I'm just going to paraphrase is the names of all of these runs, how like, People are like, "Hey, man, you want to go on uh, this gnarly run here?" He's like, "No, I'll just, I'll just stay over on a uh, kitten paw, please. That, that's my thing." And they're like, "But we're gonna about to go on Hitler's abortion. Let's go." He's like, "No, thanks. I uh, want uh, goose feathers, please." <laughs> so that's Hitler's abortion is the one that stuck out. That's what I was gonna call the summertime when you're in a tomato row. Uh, it's like, oh my god, is there a gnarlier place in the world right now? And you, like squish into another rotten tomato. Oh yeah, that's. Oh, the smells that if, if we could transfer the olfactory hues of, of farming to people, it would, it'd be the game changer. That's the part that I'm trying to figure out how to, how to put, put that into words in some of my posts, you know, it's like the olfactory, this, that kind of sensory experience. It, there's just nothing yeah. like it. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot of them that you wouldn't expect, like the, the bottom of an old onion bag. 
mm. and uh, uh, the old old melons, broccoli, uh, uh-huh. broccoli, rotting broccoli. Yeah, yeah, yeah. like a, like when you till in a, a brassica field. Oh no, I'm thinking about you- a wax box of broccoli that was from market three weeks ago that's been sitting on your loading dock, and people have put uh-huh. like other boxes on top of it, and then you walk out one day, and you're just like sulfuric hell, what? God is this? And then you start digging through the boxes and all of a sudden you find the box of the broccoli and it's just this melting, melting floret of doom, you know, like that's what I'm talking about. And onions are right there too. They're horrible. Do you, do you remember, I don't know if you even maintain this setup in your pack shed Mm -hmm. after I left, but the, um, one of the entrances, there's there's like there's like the medium cool, the warming the tomato room and the and the squash room. I don't know if you kept it there. Yep. It, yeah, that little room there off to the side. Yep. And uh, I you there's a time where this was like full summer delirium, and the squish tomato thing was uh, made me think of it. Where I was I was at a wash station that when I happened to be facing that door right that that little room from a washing from the wash tank. And, and you're in there sorting tomatoes and making, I don't know, just sorting tomatoes for making cases. And you just like step out and you fastball fucking <laughs> Nolan Ryan, a, 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 a rotten tomato. He just hit me in the chest. And I just look at you deadpan and you're looking at me completely deadpan. But like I could see the, the roots of a smile. Like he wanted it to be funny. Like you're in your mind you're going, please laugh, please, please laugh. And I don't know if I did, <laughs> but I liked it but at the same time. And he just stepped back into the, into the room and just went about it. Like, I was like, oh my God, I have this like Superman emblem now on my chest of rotten tomato, rotten heirloom tomato. And it like stuck and it was on the floor. And I, I in my mind, I'm like, man, a food fight would have been so fun if we just could have launched into one like, like, like Hook and like a Robin Williams movie in, in a, but uh, it was just just peak summer delirium and, uh, and rotten tomatoes, man. Yeah, I've done. That's I've, so funny. I've done a few things like that over time to various people, you know, just to break the to break the the monotony of things. I think I don't know, and maybe I probably was. I think I'm kind of a character, Tyler. Um, I think that <sighs> I've thought about that over the years, and I'm like, man, I think I really am always tempted to push people's buttons, you know, in a loving way, but kind of got to do that just to see where people's levels are at. And I guess you're not really supposed to do that anymore, but I think it's a really good thing (laughs) for the human condition to just push buttons, never hurt, but just push buttons and see where, you know, because you can always say, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I think I was good. It wasn't like, I don't think you, I think you understood that it was, it was well received, even though the reaction might not have been what you anticipated. I mean, meanwhile, it's like, (laughs) it's, it's, there's, there's like jungle music blasting. Like I can't even hear myself think because at that point in the year, Mm -hmm. like the feel like there's a, on your, on your volume dial, there's a June volume and a July volume, but an August and September volume, it's cranked. Like your, your self-talk is so negative that you don't even want to hear yourself talk anymore to yourself so it's just let's let's have the fastest beat per minute the most gnarliest like electronic music and it's crank it and uh so it was it felt it felt part and parcel it's like it was it was mood appropriate for, for where i was in to just start flinging it wasn't like a playful toss right this is a no this was i a chunky i brandy wine yeah 
I, I, it would have been, and it would have been really, really ripe. I mean, yeah. like super ripe. Like I'm like, this thing is going to hit his chest and is going to explode into a bazillion pieces. Like you, you ever see that movie Tropic Thunder? Yeah. You know where the, oh, yeah. you know where the director takes a step forward and explodes <laughs> at the very beginning of the movie? That's, that's the imagery. Yeah, I mean, so a lot of people, when they see a really ripe tomato, they think, oh, man, I'm thinking about the caprese salad I'm going to make with this later or the BLT or the perfect, the market customer. Your thought was, let's see how this is going to explode in his chest. And I hope he doesn't see it coming. And I hope it surprises him. And I hope it just flashes <laughs> all over his eyes. It gets it gets tomato acid in all of his wounds. Mm -hmm. That's uh, that's Yeah. That's that's great. That's a great initial first thought. Glad you acted on it. Tastes like uh, tastes like burning. I think that's a Ralph <laughs> Ralph Wiggum. Ralph. <laughs> oh man. Um. So, so I want to hear about uh your, you know, your time after Blue Fox. You're now and then moving into farming, farming with your partner and kids and all of that. Before we get too long in all this, I'd love to hear where things are yeah. at. That's the part that, I mean, we've caught up a little bit about that, but I think it's a big part of who you are now, obviously. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, it is who I am. And, um, it's, 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 uh, so I left, I left Blue Fox in 2014 and I came back to Sacramento and talk about farmer arrogance, right? So my, or more like naivete, I thought I like, all right, if I, I, I'm pretty sure I had it figured out when I got here, but now that I've been here, and, and Blue Fox is already a pretty well-established farm. Uh, what, not 30 years like Full Belly was, but, you know, 2014, you guys have been in years. business for 10 years, right? Mm -hmm. So you had tractors and systems and land and infrastructure. And I had a lot of refrigerated trucks and, and all that. So I got to see, right, taking that early, that advice early on, it was a smaller scale. I think we were doing 30 acres. Is that, is that, is that between... The home home farm across the probably street. probably so yeah at, at twenty third across the street in the in the in the, in the I think um, we jumped up uh, I think we jumped up in scale the second year you were there too I think there was a considerable yeah, that was that was when we were wholesaling to OGC at that point and that's yeah, when yeah Andres and the boys were there and uh, and that was yep. like that was Beto Beto and Chewy mm -hmm. yeah. Um, this is another tangent. I, one of my ideas for things to talk about was uh, all the times I realized I was racist. So let's just, uh, we could just I'll just let it, let that hang over because it has to do with Andre. Cool. Um, uh, not in, unintentionally. Uh, Tell me this. I mean, I want to hear this. Like, I, oh man, like just do uh, the do the side if you want to. Like, do the side shoot. I would love to hear your take on this because I know you're not actually racist, but yeah, but, you just know, a, just a, it's just so. Um, and uh, there, there is this restaurant in San Francisco that when I was in in Ber living in Berkeley, right in the in like pretty pretty deep into the food scene, working at Chez Panisse and knowing all these like high performing f food entrepreneurs, people who would have crazy concept restaurants, pop ups here and there. Um, so we we heard this place called Mission Chinese in San Francisco, which at the time was like fairly new. And it was in the in the Mission District, and it was this guy Danny Bowen, who's who's I think he, I don't even know if he's Chinese, but I think he is from Oklahoma. Excuse me, from Oklahoma, uh, uh, adopted, and yet he found his way out cook making this. But it was it was it was like American Chinese, but really well uh, and done really well. 
And uh, my good friend who, who got me the job at Chez Panisse, he and I went out there to meet up with my friend's brother who was living in the mission and pretty tapped into the scene there too. Well, I don't know if he's living in the mission, but he's living in San Francisco. And so we were there and Herbie, my friend's brother, knew the server. And we were there, we're eating, the food's incredible. Server is an Asian guy. I, and, and he's and I happen to notice how muscular his forearms are as he's dropping our plates on the table. It's jacked. And so I'm noticing it, noticing it, and our meal is going on, enjoying the food. And I go, and, and I think he knows Herbie. I go, Herbie, dude, this guy is jacked. What's his deal? Is he like do karate or or like some sort of martial arts? And Herbie's like, ah, I think he's a rock climber, man. And I thought, oh shit, that's not good. That was one example. Um, <laughs> and, uh, no. And um, so I had to reckon with that. Another one with Andres that I was thinking of, also food-related. And so I go to uh, early on in my time at Blue Fox, I'm talking to Andres. And um, and I think, okay, I'm going to approach him, and he's going to tell me we're all – he's right. Andres is from Jalisco, I think his people were yeah. – he's from. So yep. he's Mexican guy. And, and it's like, oh, he's going to tell me where all the dank Mexican food is here because he's Mexican and he eats Mexican food, right? Oh, I know, so I I know him, the answer. And I was like, this is so good. Go ahead. Andre's like, <laughs> so like, where do you, uh, what do you like to eat? And trying to do it in Spanish. And he's like, and he's telling me about this Chinese buffet that he likes to go to and these other things. I'm thinking, oh my God, he's not saying Mexican food at all. And I think, oh, God damn it. Of course. It was the 1010 buffet. <laughs> yeah, I loves it. Yeah. And a Tintin buffet. And I thought, oh my gosh, of course he can eat whatever the hell food he wants to eat. He's a human. And uh, so that was another time. You know what he uh, said was I really helped. good at the 1010 buffet? Was the hamburger. <laughs> I'm not kidding. And I, we, we, he and I like stopped and laughed in the field for so long. It's like, oh, where'd you go to eat this weekend, Andres? And he goes, oh, the 1010 buffet. And I go, oh, yeah, how was it? And he goes, oh, it's really good. I was like, what'd you get? He goes, I got a hamburger. And I just looked at him and he looked at me and we just, oh, dude, it was one of the best laughs I ever had with him. So good. So that's a two. Those are great. Two examples. Yeah. Uh, so where are we? Yeah. Now, um, like yeah, where you was, are, where you are now and where I am now, I'm still racist. <laughs> no, uh, <laughs> and, uh, not trying to be, but I'm work, working hard. It's just to be, uh, I, I don't, you're a good just, human, Tyler. That's all that matters. I'm trying. So we moved here, right. And I had thought I had it figured out and I, and, and I left in 2015 was going to be the season. I was going to come home and I was going to start up my farm. Right. I thought I had it figured out when I left, Philobelia came to Blue Fox, learned I didn't, but then I really thought I had it figured out after I left. And uh, so this is still like I had been farming at this point for three years, three, four years. And um, right, it's all figured out. And I was going to do that really small scale model, that Curtis Stone model, where you're, you're starting with my parents' house. We're going to rip up the lawns and plant vegetables. People are going to love it. They're going to buy everything Then I'm going to take up other people's yards in the neighborhood and have this patchwork farm uh, when I'm farming all these different backyards and front yards. And uh, this was in 2015. In that time, there's another big drought in California where people were being restricted on ornamental uh, irrigation, but not if not on gardens. If you're growing edible stuff, you could you could use water that way. I was like, oh, this is a perfect, forget zero skate, man. This is the future. This is going to be perfect. It's going to be great. Uh, I, man, I think I had a breakdown every day uh, trying to figure that out, trying to 
figure out my business. I, I, I remember the first one was I finally got my parents' yards totally stripped. And it was like, I don't know, 30,000 square feet. No, no, way less. 3,000 square feet, I think it was there. there. And uh, I planted all at once. And as it became time to pick, and I had known about succession planting and, and all that, but for some reason, the temptation to just fill it up was uh, was too great. And it was each bed was a different thing. So like I was diversified and I had, you know, 10 bed feet of, of 10 different things. So I picked it all, sold it, which like I had to get over that self too of walking into a cold, cold calling a restaurant, going to the back and, and tracking up a relationship. And I have this boomer, you know, this, this big ass sample box. And then like, I wouldn't have anything left to sell them. The guy's like, cool. You're in production to go. No, that was it. That's all I got. <laughs> <laughs> like, okay, well I'll take it. It looks great. But, um, Whenever you're in production, you know, let me know. And, and so then I started selling at my, out of my parents' driveway. And this is, this is all leading – I'll speed up the story in a second, but this is all leading to another, another pivotal move. And, and uh, I, my mom loved doing yard sales and garage sales. So she was doing a lot of them. And so I just had a little vegetable stand uh, at, next to like her old uh, puzzles and jigsaw puzzles and, and, you know, buttons and stuff that she was selling. And, and I got a, comp- and I was doing that for a while and I ended up getting a complaint from someone. And in the, the, the county that I was at, maybe this was a city ordinance where um, you couldn't, there was no law. It wasn't that what I was doing was illegal. It was that there was no law saying that it was allowed or or something screwy where people are like, we've never talking to the city. Like we've never, when the codes are written, no one ever anticipated someone selling produce from their own house. So, um, sorry, you can't do that. And so there's nothing that says you can't, and I go, that's, 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 that's lame. Um, and the, uh, I, I smoked out the, the, the narc eventually i got a load of chips dropped in my parents driveway and this lady comes walking out of her house four doors down she's like that's it and she comes down i you're making this neighborhood unsafe and there's this like planting kale you know and selling kale all this the added traffic it's like lady i i have one customer a day what are you talking about and this is and so i you know had this conversation with her this letter like exhaust the hot air balloon just totally deflated and she had realized like i'm so i was talking about the state of farming and how hard it is to farm and like i'm not i'm not just a chump i'm just like i have education i have experience i'm trying to do this thing this is why the cards are stacked against me and you're not helping and but anyways i had to shut it down meanwhile in sacramento county uh the they were just passing an urban ordinance to allow what i was doing to be legal and so people can set up these little homesteads and sell produce to their community and uh, so i went to a, a, a city council meeting in roseville in placer county and i was just talking in front of them and i said guys can we just um do what they're doing and they went uh-huh sounds good <clears throat> very good thank you uh-huh you you done very good okay next and and uh and so I had ended up stopping and take, took a job. I got a job. Finally got the farm manager's job that I had been applying for for years at this nonprofit farm here. And uh, I've been farming it. I've been working here as a farm manager ever since. And <clears throat> so still farming, but realized like I needed to make money. And, uh, and I didn't re- – it turns out I still didn't know what I was doing. And I, I would say that part of that is still true. 
And then uh, pandemic year, my, my partner and I, we had our children. And so this is 2020. We had kids and, and we realized that. Uh, explain, is, explain is, real quick why, you, you're, yeah. why it's plural. Kids? I have twins. Yeah. I have twin children, right? <laughs> that, was, that was a good one. Um, yeah, when the when the um, your midwife calls you and they're like, "Hey, the the DNA results came back. Are you sitting down?" <laughs> You're like, "What?" <laughs> like, well, we don't know. There's two sets of DNA, and I'm like, uh, "What does that mean?" She's like, "Well, very kind." <laughs> they're like, "Don't you don't get it?" Well, so two sets Dos. of DNA mean two people. <laughs> yeah. I go, uh, what does that mean? <laughs> like not willing to accept. Yeah. She's like, well, there could be two or one could be vanished, a vanished twin we learned about where like one dies in the womb and, and like gets absorbed at a really early stage and gets absorbed. Kind of like not consumed, but they just kind of, they just, they don't. So, but um, before these DNA tests, I guess the, the existence of vanished twins was probably far more prominent than people realized, but they weren't able to detect them prior to the DNA testing because there's no way that physically seeing it, I think they're still attached to the, you can still see this like small mark uh, on the, 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 the placenta that once it comes out, you can see like, oh, I know it now, but people were probably just looking right past it in the chaos of a birth, man. I mean, that's, that's a gnarly experience. Um, so had the twins and, uh, that, that, that will nothing like children to, uh, consume all of your excess capacity. And so there is this, there's this, another serious reckoning that happened between my partner and I, as the kids were like, really this happened when they were, you know, one, two, like one, one and a half, because, uh, we, we realized that. Farming for someone else was still someone else's vision. And I think all farmers who get into farming have this entrepreneurial spirit to them and they want their own thing. And I think there's plenty of like, when I get on my farm, as you're working, I don't know if you did this. Well, you guys ended up farming on your own. So I'm sure you did this. We're like, when I do it, my place is going to do this. And we're going to have these machines and these tools, these crops. So, of course, that was alive. And, uh, but, but with more mouths to feed, we and, and we wanted to um, we wanted more money too. So we decided to uh, to start off a bit <laughs> another farm business. We started we were growing pastured poultry in our off time. So um, not a wise choice, it, it turns out. But it was I'm proud of us for doing it. So we were we were these seeds are planting for for something different, knowing that farming that this path that we had was not going to take us to where we want to go because we, we had more that we wanted out of life and we didn't have more to give. And previously, as we ascended through the ranks of different of our, of our careers, the formula was if we wanted more reward, we just worked harder and that's it. We just, you just grunt for harder, longer, and that's it. And, uh, but when the reservoirs of the grunting ran dry, and we still wanted more out of life. We had to rethink that approach. And so that and enters a, a therapist and looking into your relationship with work and productivity and how you define your self-worth from your output and your productivity and um, it had to be this particular kind. So it's this hardcore introspection. And we thought, uh, and in your identity too, because you, you, you are, at least in my case, I thought I am farmer. 
if I am not farmer, then I am not me, which of course is a load of shit. Um, you know, you, you are, you, you are, you aren't that you're, that was a part of you for who, but it wasn't all of you. And so that was hard to reckon with. And, um, and so we decided to look outside of like hardcore production, veggie, you know, veggie grind for a bit to, and this is after pastured poultry. And like, so we weren't just raising the chickens. We were, we were, we bought all the equipment to process them ourselves. Uh, and, uh, and it was more work. And we thought, this is, we got out of, we, we tried this to try and do something that we thought it'd be better or different. And it turns out it was more of the same. And so, um, you know, I, 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 uh, I could see in the future and look at some of these role models that I had. And this isn't, uh, this isn't, this isn't, uh, to take this the wrong way, but I'd look at you and I'd look at the full belly folks and I would see like, are they somewhere where I want to be? And, 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 and if they are, can they get there through a path that's replicable today in 2023 in 2022? And I thought, no, to all of them across the board, like this, where I, where, where these people are either isn't where I want to be or where how they or it is maybe, but there's not a good model for me to follow there. Like this is just, this is goes back to the state of farming and, um, and, uh, so like, all right, well, um, okay. That's interesting. Noteworthy. Putting more my future in farming, like further into question. Okay. How, how was up? And then, and then the relationships with money, like, you know, and, and agriculture farmers are notorious for saying stuff like, oh, I'm not in it for the money. And if I was in it for the money, I would, blah, 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 blah. well, you know, I think that's all. I learned that that's also a load of shit too. Like, of course money's important. And, and I don't, I didn't, I wasn't healthy for me to be burying that sentiment and that attachment too. So, <clears throat> So the, the new discovered relationship towards money was that I wanted more of it than I had and I was okay. And, uh, and it was okay to want more and I'm not, and, uh, cause I want this life for my family. And, uh, and when you look at a life holistically, right, there's, there's so much you want to provide for your kids and for yourself. And, uh, and a lot of that needs, you need, in this world, you need money to, to provide a lot of that. And, and that's okay. So, um, we're now looking outside of agriculture to, uh, to, to make a living. And, uh, I, uh, as a, as a dad hobby was, was like making a lot of cheeseburgers in the backyard as my Zen space, trying to provide a good, and it felt like a good dad thing, right. To have a good, like knockdown cheeseburger recipe. And, uh, so I was pursuing that and noticed on Instagram that a lot of my, there's a lot of these pop-up cheeseburger businesses were doing great. And, uh, and so that seemed like, Oh, maybe, maybe it's being a line cook, <laughs> being a cheeseburger. And this is my old brain looking back on it. Now it's like, I want to, want to just wring my own neck because they started pursuing that. And, and so the equipment came in recipe testing, started getting a few gigs, not really seriously, but like, not, not like, no, I was serious. But so we did some catered, some weddings, uh, did a little pop-up here and there. And we're selling cheeseburgers and it was great, but it was more of the same. It was, it felt like a farmer's market grind where you're just loading up the car, driving all this way, doing this completely arduous, physically taxing stuff. And like, you get a couple hundred bucks at the end of it and you got to do it every time. And I thought, this is, this is nuts. This is more of the same. Yes. It's nice. Maybe, maybe you just leave cheeseburgers to being your cool dad thing. And, 
and uh, maybe not pursue that as a way to make a living. And, um, and so um, looking for other avenues and, and to, to make a living and, and settling into real estate investing, turns out. And uh, that, that seems to be something that's farming adjacent. All those wonderful things that attracted me to farming are still alive. So there's these strong aspirations to save the world, right? This is through healing land. Um, cheeseburgers are still tied up in there somewhere. But it's, it's, it's uh, providing a, a safe, wonderful, exploratory, magical place for my kids to grow up. Uh, those are all, th these things still exist. Connection to nature, being outside. But uh, I, I want to, I think I'm needing to fund that a different way. And so here's a, here's a, and I was, so I was looking for a vocation that could be compatible with my flexible, my needs or desires for a flexible schedule to work remotely and that provided a good return and that could potentially get me access to land in the future. And so real estate seemed to be a, a, a choice that, is completely different. It's scary. Um, it's scary for lots of reasons. One, because it's something, something I know very little about. It's a shift. Like I worried about what my mentors and community would think. You know, that's part. That's certainly part of this narrative of changing. And um, <clears throat> so I've been doing that for a few months now, and uh, trying to work away and 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 real estate investing, trying to really fund this multifaceted holistic life design that my, that Kellen and I have, have, have created for ourselves. So it's, uh, I've stepped back from farming almost 100%. I still work a day a week uh, at the, but it's, it's a clipboard farmer. I'm just in the, in the office, walking the fields, making crop plans, asking questions to, uh, and um, helping providing some guidance to the team that's in place. Uh, over at the farm because um, so they're still connected to agriculture and farming, but not, not nearly like it was. Has that, has that transition gone smoothly? What ones do? No, yeah. of course not, yeah. man. It's which transitions do run smoothly. And it's, I think, you know, on paper you could say like, Oh yeah, this is going just as planned. This is pretty common for folks transitioning in to do these things, but internally in my head and my brain and, my soul and my gut, like, fuck, man, I, I, I have a, I have a breakdown, not a full fledged breakdown, but I have one almost, almost every week where I've got to like, uh, psych myself into it, especially coming from farming. Every, I get tapped back into that world each week and it's, it's easy. Not, it's not easy, but it's easier. I have a far, I'm on the phones a lot in, in, in real estate. I'm talking to real estate agents, uh, commercial land brokers, commercial building brokers, uh, sellers, owners of homes. And I'm not an expert and I'm trying to like fake it a ways. I'm using the tools that I have available to me and my knowledge, my limited knowledge. And I'm on there, I'm stumbling and people are being mean to me and, uh, and, and it's tough, but then I get into my farm days and I'm talking about someone about order, ordering fertilizer or like t discussing, new implements and machines and we're in the farm world and I'm smooth, it's confident and it's easy. It's, it's like, Oh, I have, I have a far greater degree of expertise here. So it gets comfortable. And, and so I get back, I fall back on that comfort. And then I realize like, Oh my gosh, I've got, and I get overwhelmed transitioning back. So there's that weekly reminder that I'm still new to this new industry, which is a great thing. Uh, at the same time, it's still like, Oh, this is just, I got to psych myself up for it. So, um, you know, so it's, uh, it's, it's tough. 
And um, so smooth kind of, <laughs> but, and we, and we have to, you know, when you have kids and I'm sure this is when you have kids, plural, no matter their ages, then things shift dramatically because there's more people there. There's more to handle. So not, not hating on my, uh, my friends who have one kid, but when you have more than one, it's, it's, you gotta be much more involved. And so everything that I do, every, every, every move that I make is one that has to be discussed and collaborated and planned for. And there's never any resistance in our internal family planning, everything like we're Kellen's starting our own business too. And, and we're all fully on board with our mutual, you know, enterprises, but we got to plan for it because there's these two kids that need care and attention. And, um, we don't have a ton of ex outside help and they're still so young that they're not in school yet. So, um, you know, you, 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 you have to exercise that conviction, even with your spouse, when you got like, this is something I believe in. Uh, I, I think that I want to go do this. There's this zoom that I really want to attend. I know this is your time. You usually work in your business, but I want to attend this zoom or go to this real estate meetup, or I take this phone call or take this other thing. And so that, that advocacy, that nonstop advocacy is also tough because you know, you, you want to just like go out and you're with your autonomy and go out to your place or your shed or your office or your workspace and just like fiddle around without having to advocate for it and be vulnerable and not have to, it's not like I have to ask permission again, but it's, but just the nature of being a, a dad of two people, two kids. I don't know if that was the same for you guys when the kids were young. Otherwise you just are sacrificing your sleep. You're just waking up super early or staying up late after the kids go down. So then it's like, do whatever the hell you want at that point. Cause you don't have the kids to fend for. Um, but you know, so that contributes to, to the, the transition. So it's kind of smooth. And then you, you set out for a plan. Things don't go the way you planned. You have to get the feedback, re-implement. And, um, so we're in that process, that, that iteration, which is life yeah. too. No, it's, and it's, I mean, it's entrepreneurship too, you know? I mean, that's the thing that I, there's a commonality that I've noticed with a lot of people that happen in the farming world that we have this entrepreneurial like spirit about us, but we don't recognize that that's what it is. And so it's one of those things where I think you have skill sets that will allow you to, to flourish in other, other realms because you have that entrepreneurial spirit about you, but it's just a you have to learn the language of this new world you're in, you know, first. And once you learn that language, then you'll become really, you'll be really good at it. You know? Yeah. Farming, farming, some of the most impressive people like, and, and what impresses me in people is when they're like well-rounded and they have not only just in their skill sets, but in their, um, self-understanding, self-reflection and intelligence, emotional intelligence, you know, book smarts too. But those impressive people are all farmers. I, I, I've, I've never met an industry more saturated with impressive people than farmers. And um, so I think it's a, it's a cool springboard into other things because, you know, you have to develop so much. You have to have such a wide skill set that is that some of it you just, I don't know, we're like people have singers, vocalists, right? Like you, you got it or you don't, you know, you can only train so much. And I think there's some of that into what makes a, a great farmer or entrepreneur 
you can learn a ton and have success, but there's some innate, I don't know if it's a talent or a proclivity towards, towards it to withstand the, the pain of, of growth that, uh, that separates the, the wheat from the chaff in, in this industry. And I think it allows pivots and um, people who can harness that, the skills that make them great farmers, uh, they can, they can be successful anywhere. Yep. I'm, so I'm, I, I'm, I can, I'm hoping that that translates, but I think it will. Yeah, it's a grind. I think it will. Yeah. yeah man. What, uh, what other, I, I want to know about your, your list of things. Do you think you want to touch on? Let's see. So, um, yeah. Do you know, <clears throat> do you know, uh, you, you just had, so a couple of weeks ago we were scheduling this, it was Story's birthday, mm-hmm. right? And, and I was thinking back on his birthdays when I was there. And uh, did you know I was trying to plant the seeds of a sibling rivalry while uh, I was there? I was trying to create this beef between Damien and Story. Oh, really? No, I didn't know that. I, I was, yes. And it is one that I think you'll be okay with. Yeah. And uh, so Is this just to I get gave... even for the tomato? No, no. This is pre-tomato, I think. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, so I gave, I wanted to, the, the rivalry was um, Prince versus Michael Jackson. That was the rivalry. Mm. And I gave Damien... A Michael Jackson record for his like eighth, seventh birthday, sixth birthday, uh-huh. and, and I gave, I think I gave, I gave him off the wall, and I gave stories out of my collection, and I gave story, Purple Rain, I think, mm-hmm. and 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 like, what are you giving three year olds records for? But I was, that was, that was one. I don't know if that maintained, but to me, I was like, okay, though, I'm pretty sure Story's the Prince guy, and that's uh, accurate, and, and Michael Jackson would be the Damien guy. And, uh, so I, any, any chance that that lasted, if <laughs> that persisted? Well, the only, the only anecdote to that, that I would add is I came across as I'm going through all these old videos, as I'm doing these, the, the blast from the past posts, I've been going through videos and I came across a video the other day. It's five and a half minutes long of Damien. The premise of the video was I'm in my I'm somewhere, Damien says in the video, there are no secret agents around, thankfully, so I can just dance. And it's Thriller then starts playing. And, you know, Thriller's a long song. Um, And then it gets into... And so Damien is grooving. I mean, he's just dancing nonstop for five minutes. And probably 30 seconds in, Story comes out of you know, comes out of the background, sliding across with sunglasses and an earpiece on pretending like he's a secret agent than the entire song. And he's sliding around from one side and sliding around to the other and falling down. Cause he's, you know, on a wood floor with socks. And so he's, and he's going around and he's going like this the whole time. Like he's talking to his other agents and stuff. And Damien is just keeps dancing the whole time. And then somewhere at like the four and a half minute mark, I walk up to Damien. I said, good thing there's no secret agents. He goes, man, because if there was, I would definitely stop dancing. And then the camera, because I'm recording all this, goes, I go back to store yeah. and I'm like, so are you a secret agent? And he pulls his glasses down like this and goes like that, puts them back up and then disappears. <laughs> so I, that's perfect. That's perfect secret agent. Yeah. Is, yeah. So do you think that, that you think that they planned that or do you think story took that? And he's like, I'm going to be the secret agent to, I, to, to foil brothers. I have a feeling, 
I have a feeling it was probably Damien said, here's the premise. This is what I need you to uh-huh. do. We're, we're doing this. And I have a feeling he would have come up to me and been like, Hey, can you record this for me? Cause I've got this plan. Um, cause he would do that a lot. Cause he's the, he's the CEO. Damien is definitely uh-huh. CEO of the family, which, you know, CEO doesn't mean you're always in control of the company. You just run it. Um, I would say that that is kind of, cause I would, <laughs> Melanie's definitely the COO and then story is story is definitely the, the company guru. He owns, he owns uh stock in the company that we gave him early on, but he doesn't really care about it. So he's the chief inspiration officer yeah, or something yeah, that goes off in like some, some silly title that, yeah, uh, that he could give the guy who doesn't wear shoes to work. Yeah, he could care less. You know, he's kind of, yeah. he's like that, uh, He's like that one fellow in the big short, you know, the guy that is always listening to like death metal in his office, you know, um, uh, what's his name? Michael, Michael Burry or something like that in the big short. You ever see that movie? I, I think I do. I'm not catching. I don't remember yeah. this part. Anyway, like, so when the, when the accountant comes in, they're like, "Who is the, who's? Why is payroll so high? Who is this? <laughs> yeah. Who is who is the chief inspiration? The chief goofy officer? Yeah. Like he's oh, making yeah. a half million I've, here? Like really? I've never seen him before. I'm like oh, he's he's integral to the company. Yeah. Just don't worry about him. Yeah, he's important. I've been looking for a job like that for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So you know that's that's the furthest I think it went with Prince and. And Michael Jackson, both of the boys though are definitely into. They like it when I pull the vinyl out still. So. Oh, good. Mm-hmm. Good. It's still good. Um, I, I uh, okay. Well, okay. To be, to, I think I had that right though. Between story oh. being the Prince guy. Oh yeah, you nailed it. I mean, Damien yeah. still is a moonwalk kind of guy. I mean, like if he's uh, if he's getting down, there's definitely a moonwalk that's going to happen at some point. So. Did you ever, um, so this is something that I, I was thinking of, I was doing this, I was pretty proud of, I was like, this is so ridiculous, but I'm so, I, this is funny. It's a, it's a parenting thing where like you, you, I think the, uh, you use, um, like the excuse of being a good dad to justify these vices that you're participating in. And for example, um, <clears throat> we were like sitting on the couch reading or like watching a show and the kids, <clears throat> it was just me. And the kids were like, uh, hey, um, Zora, my daughter, was like, hey, can you can I have another snack? And it was a nice, you know, healthy snack of some time. Um, I don't know what it was. It was like this nice, nice meat slices and carrot sticks or something. I said, sure. And I was so getting up, being a good dad, getting my kids snacks. But really, oh, I was being so, uh, I was so quick to the jump to get her snacks because there's a fat bowl of cookie dough in the fridge that I was just like pounding, had like a baker's dozen uh, in one sitting and so I would just happily get her snacks all day long just so I could go and like do my thing or like go look on my phone or something. So it's using, I'm a good dad. <laughs> so I would use these excuses as being a good dad to go suck on a log of oatmeal raisin. Oh, man. Well, you know that there's uh, that old Louis C.K. joke about where he takes the family on vacation or whatever. And his vacation is just that time from when he shuts the door and for his wife and walks around the car and gets in like, that's his vacation. That 30 seconds of silence. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So he's, it's all worth it. Yeah. And I, and those things are, were popping up uh, every day. Like uh, let's go on a bike ride kids. It's mostly because I wanted to get on my bike and I wasn't going to see a window or like, let's go, let's go do this so I can, um, let's go walk to the farm kids. Cause I want to check on the work that the crew did that day. And the, you know, being a good dad. <laughs> so this is, uh, I do it. I do it different. too. I do it too, Tyler. I mean, I I'll be like, 
hey, I was thinking we should run out to the farm for a little bit. You guys can play ping pong. That'll be fun, huh? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and then yeah. it's like, they're like 15 minutes later, like, uh, where's dad? And like, they'll go outside. I'm like on the roof fixing you know, like putting screws into the, cause I knew when I had driven by the previous day coming home from work, I had seen, uh, one of the roof panels fluttering in the wind. I was like, I've got to fix that. There's only, the only time I'll be able to fix that is this weekend. We're going to go play ping pong. So flip flops and the, and like your work, your tool belt. And, oh, dude, and, I've, yeah. I've framed houses in, in flip flops and or Crocs. Um, yeah, easy. That's you just, kind of got to yeah. do what you got to do. It's a strong, it's a strong parenting move though. I think, I, I don't think it's anything to feel bad about and uh, really, um, but it's strategy. It's, it's a way, it's a way we all can win. <laughs> so that was, that was one note. Um, <laughs> yeah. Racist stuff, uh, civil rivalry vices. So like part of my, um, part of my transformation. So I'm like going through this deep, you know, I'm in the, I'm in the cocoon of goo when like the, the caterpillar has made the cocoon and, and on, on their way to the on the way to becoming the beautiful butterfly, you're just in this chrysalis of of gunk, and that's 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 where I am right now, just total metamorphosis. And maybe I hope maybe that's life. You're just stuck in the cocoon, hopefully. And um, so part of it is my physical health, and I'm trying to work through some some like digestive stuff too. No, so I'm working through this. So I'm like, and, uh, and Kellen is uh, is is a. Uh, you know, she's, she's an herbalist. And so I've gone through these consults with her. And so we're going through this, this like, call it a mono diet ish, where it's more like an elimination diet. I suspect candida is at play mm -hmm. in my constitution, a warm, wet constitution. And I'm, and I'm also like an absent minded eater. So like, I'll just eat, eat, eat and not really be present. So that's why, um, You'll never find a, some things you'll never find in our house are half bags of chips or like partial bags of chips. When we have full bags and that's it. Cause once it's open, it's done. Forget it. Yep. Uh, dusted. It, it's done. Mm -hmm. Cookie dough bowls, as I've alluded to earlier. And so I, so we're going through this thing in this phase right now. We're just eating basically like rice porridge and, and meat because it's a really easy to digest food. And I was trying to stay away and trying to exercise this willpower. And, um, cause the kids need snacks and they need their, all their stuff. They won't, they'll, they'll, they'll throw that rice porridge like across the, they'll throw their plate at you if you try and give them that too often. So we made them pot. So I'm like trying to, trying to mostly it's what gets me uh, these, these bowls of snacks. So we made popcorn for the kids and, um, and I'm trying hard cause I love popcorn, especially we kill and melted some nice butter on there. Good salt. And it's all there and the kids are eating and they're having their time. So I'm like, ah, just, just stay strong, stay strong. And I go to fill myself up a cup of water and it was the same glass that she melted the butter in. So I've got this like slippery, buttery cup of water. I'm like, damn it. I can't get, I can't get away. Just sabotage everywhere I go. That was fun. This, this slippery cup of melted butter. You've been trying so hard and then the universe just, uh, Force feeds me butter. Who's the guy that puts butter <laughs> in his coffee? Isn't that Dave? Is that Dave? Yeah, Asbury? yeah, Dave Asprey. The, yeah. the, the, we still do that too. But um, well, now you're, it's your new trend. Just putting butter in the water. Just put it in the. Forget it. He makes that, or someone does. They call it like fat water mm -hmm. or something, where they have suspended, you know, coconut oil from. Where do they get this stuff? It's like it's from. Yeah, imagine these poor, these poor like coconut farmers. <laughs> Uh, just having their products shape the, the 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 Silicon Valley superstars, and just it's anyway, yeah. So it, it could be 
just in the water. It wasn't great, to be honest. <laughs> I love butter and I love water. Yeah. But I was not I was not into that one. Yeah. That was a funny anecdote. I like but I like, like orange juice and milk, but I don't think I'd ever mix them. So Yeah, that's like a the orange dream machine, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Okay, how am I doing? How's the uh, how's the uh, audience still with me? Uh, yeah, they're with you. Are your are your are your listeners still into this? Talk? Oh yeah, let's see in the chat right now. We have uh, six thousand five hundred and forty two people. <laughs> it's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. That's all my that's all my funny notes. Uh, everything else is is like just these all this stuff that is things that I'm learning about myself and. Um, and being a, trying to be a good dad and a good contributor, and but these are all like deep, deep, hard lessons learned. Um, that I don't know. Well, I think I think that I think for today we should we should wrap up there. But what I want to say is my plan for this in the future is to interact with people, like kind of get people's stories, but then circle back around with those people again later, whenever there's certain like hot topics to talk about, you know, like, like I've thought about that as like, once we kind of get some momentum with this podcast going, then say we have a, a period of time where we talk about, I don't know, something really specific as CSAs, you know, good, bad, ugly, whatever. Um, and then chat with, chat with people in 15 to hour long increments and get a bunch of different people's perspective on a topic, you know, and then, and then, um, sew all that into one episode. Do you, you recall, I mean, so when you were on the, 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 um, farmer to farmer Mm -hmm. with Chris, with with Blanchard. Yeah. With Chris. And I feel like, like at the time, I feel like he was sick. He was right. Mm -hmm. And yeah. And so there was, like um, a question, you know, that was, that was the, uh, the inevitable, the hard truth about the future of the podcast was who's going to, who's going to take it over. And I feel like you were like wanting to, right. Is that, do I have that right? Uh, so this is another post that I have almost posted multiple times with my blast from the past. It would have been, I think it was 2017. I, I'll have to check and see, but I want to say it was 2017. I was getting ready to do my big push for the Living Soil Symposium. I was going to have it in Portland that year. And that was the year that, in my mind, the the podcast was going to go from being, or I mean, the uh, the conference was going to be, was going to go from being small time, local Rogue Valley to Portland, big time. This is a conference that we're, is going to be my life for the next period of time. Mm. So I think it was 2017 because 2018 was when the, that symposium was supposed to be, which I ended up canceling. Whole other story. Um, but I was in Santa Barbara. I remember exactly where I was. I was in Santa Barbara. I was meeting two guys down there that were going to be a part. Like one of them was going to be a speaker at the symposium. And so they were in L.A. doing other work. And they said, hey, can you come down and meet with us? Because uh, we'd really like to talk about what we want to talk about at the symposium i said sure so i i paired i don't it was one of my harebrained ideas like hey melanie i'm gonna fly to la to do this other stuff i was already planning to go down there to do other stuff but i was like i'm also gonna meet with these people in santa barbara because they were supposed to meet me in la or something anyway it doesn't really matter 
I'm in Santa Barbara. I'd rented a car. I wasn't planning to do it to meet these guys. I met those guys. And then Chris Blanchard called me because I had sent him an email and said, Hey, do you want to be a sponsor for the symposium? And he called me and we had this heartfelt discussion. It was one of the heaviest discussions I've ever had where he said, I remember his words and it was weird. He said, I, I've got a bad case of the cancers. That's how he said it. It was like such a, such a like walking around what was really like he made light of it. You know, I've got a, yeah. Which is like, I'm dying, man. Yeah. I got it. That was what he was really saying. Yeah. I've got a bad case of the cancers. And I remember, and I, I was holding on to a light post. I was literally swinging around a light post in Santa Barbara in like the heart of Santa Barbara like talking to him on the phone, just swinging. And I remember stopping as he said, I got a bad case of the cancers. And I was like, oh, and I stood up straight and I was like, okay. And, and he's like, yeah, so I'm not going to really be able to do a whole lot for you with the symposium, but I'll mention it in the podcast. But you might want to think about, you know, carrying the torch after this. And I was like, well, what does that mean? I was like, do you want me to take over your podcast or something? And he goes, no, <laughs> which was great because he was just like, no, I'm not giving you the podcast, dude. You know, he was like real, real frank about that, which I really appreciated. You know, it wasn't like, a, yeah. oh, here, just have my podcast, you know, yeah. which, of course, you know how we all work where it's like, oh, yeah, let's look for the path of least resistance here. And some guy is just going to give me his podcast. He's like, no, I'm saying you when you carry the torch, you carry the torch as your own torch. But you might want to consider carrying the torch because when he and I podcasted together, the one time he interviewed with me, we talked after the recording and we just resonated really well with each other. And, and so anyway, that had always been in the back of my head through the whole time. And I mean, it really is what it was always like, a maybe I should start a podcast and there's a lot of questions to be asked and I don't really want to, hit farmers up for the nuts and bolts, even though I love talking about nuts and bolts of farming, but I don't really want to hit people up for that. I really wanted to hear the stories and that's what yeah. he, he and I wanted to, that's what we talked about off the air was our individual stories where on the air, we were talking about nuts and bolts. And so that's kind of, that's kind of where I'm at. So I have the picture that I was going to post with that blast from the past was the mug that he sent out as a farmer to farmer podcast mug that I still have. It's a great mug. Um, and it was sitting, I remember the day I got it, I took the box with me to the farm. I didn't know what it was. I opened it up and I set it on the tailgate of the refrigerated truck. And it was like, there's some plants or something in the background. And I just took a picture of it and sent him a message like, thank you or something like that. And then I got a response back that he had passed, you know? So that was like the, it like all happened. I, you know what? Actually, now I'm thinking of it. I think he sent me the box and I didn't open it for months because I think it went to the neighbors. I think that's actually what it was because I was trying to remember how that timeline worked. It was like at the neighbors and then they dropped it off. And it was like, it was like a long time after I'd been on the podcast. So. Yeah. I mean, cause so that. Hi, Lori. Hi, come here. <laughs> this is this, this is Chris. Hey, kiddo. Hey, how you doing? Yeah. Tough. How's morning, huh? 
Well, the, the thing about that farmer to farmer was it was very pro farming. And not to say that we aren't pro farming and what you would want to do is not a pro farming approach, but it's, it was, it was singular minded. It was like, here's, here's how farmers farm. And because we want farming to be, we want these, we want farmers to succeed and be successful and hear these stories about successful farmers. And I think that's great, but there's, um, there's, 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 there's a whole part of the narrative left behind where it's like, is, is, is farming great? <laughs> and, you know, or like what parts of it are and aren't and um, who, who's not, who's being left out by, by our approach this way. And so I think that the more critical, you know, topic based, let's talk about this from people who aren't currently farming like they used to. And with maybe with others is, um, could be a, a more well-rounded discussion because, you know, I, I don't know who listened to that podcast who weren't farmers, but I think it's important that people who aren't farmers know a lot more about the ins and outs of the industry. Uh, and because we farmers can only do so much. Uh, uh, yeah, I guess yeah, that's, so that's, that's the, there you go. Not only farmers, huh? Yeah. They, oh, hey, that's a good idea. Oh, that's, that's really a lot of where it stemmed from. Well, that's good, man. This is a good way to wrap it up was with the, the, the kids mandate the schedule. Yeah. Say, now's the time. Well, yeah, maybe uh, post, post that post because the torch, uh, hopefully this is the, it'll also symbolize the lighting of the, of the torch. All right. Um, well, let's wrap up there. Okay, sir. Thanks. Yeah. Love you lots, man. Love you, buddy. Okay. This is great. And, um, yeah, we'll get up there and see you guys soon, yeah. too. Come visit. Yeah. Okay. All right, man. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye.